You're listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, your source for all things real estate accounting and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We're back with episode two of the exit strategies for rental real estate. And today we're going to be discussing 1031 exchanges and qualified opportunity funds and how they can help you reduce taxes or defer taxes when you are selling your rental real estate. Yeah. And, you know, 1031 exchanges are currently under fire with the Biden administration. So we'll see what happens with that, hopefully by the end of this year. But the Qualified Opportunity Funds was kind of interesting. That came into effect with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we really haven't had a whole lot of clients that have really either started Qualified Opportunity Funds or invested in them. I think it's the... What's your take on that, Tom? I think from the feedback that I hear, and I I could be making this up, is really that 10-year hold period that scares a lot of people off. Yeah, yeah, it's a 10-year hold period because really to start a qualified opportunity fund, there's a lot of costs to get started, a lot of compliance items you need to check off and check the boxes. So uh, some people are shying away from them, but really for the passive investors, the people who would typically invest in like a a syndicate, a 10-year hold is kind of a big horizon. A lot of people are used to investing on a three to five-year period or maybe a five to seven-year period. You put 10 years... Uh, this is an uncomfortable situation for people to lock their money up. And that's just kind of why you're, you're not seeing so much excitement. But I think there's some other reasons too. I think one of the biggest reasons as well is that it's kind of confusing. Uh, so basically the way a qualified opportunity fund works is that you're able to defer your capital gains, right? Just the capital gains. Unlike a 1031 exchange where you have to invest the entire sales proceeds, with the Qualified Opportunity Fund, you have the ability to take your principal back or take your original investment back, put that back in your pocket and just invest the capital gains. And when that happens, if you hold it for a five-year period, which actually the last time you can actually get this five-year pe- hold period will be on 12-31-2021. Uh, if you invest for at least a period of five years, you get a 10% step up in basis in your original investment. So for example, if you invested $100,000 in gains in 2021, in five years from now in 2026, your capital gain, you only have to pay tax on 90% of that or $90,000 at the capital gains rate in 2026, which we'll get to in just a second. And the reason for that too, is that it is a 10% step up, like Tom said, but then he said 90% of the investment. And so I just want to clarify that when, when you invest $100,000 of gain, when you roll forward $100,000 of gain into a qualified opportunity fund, and first off, it's just the gain portion, right? You don't have to roll forward your basis. And you know, so it's a little bit different. Like I could actually cash my basis out take my cost basis back and just push the gain into the QOF, the Qualified Opportunity Fund. But when I put $100,000 in, what is my basis? My basis is $0, right? Because it's gain. It's all gain money. I haven't paid tax on it yet. So my basis is $0. It's like a traditional IRA. When I put money into a traditional IRA, my basis on that contribution is $0 because if I cash it out, I've got to pay tax on it. So what you're doing is you're saying, I put $100,000 in, I get a 10% step up on my investment, which means my basis goes from $0 to $10,000. And that's why I only pay tax on $90,000 of the gain. Yeah. 
And that's one of the one of the benefits of investing in the qualified opportunity fund is that you get to defer your taxes. So you're not paying taxes in the year you sell that asset if you invest in the qualified opportunity fund until 2026. And if you hold it for five years, you get that step up, but then you have to pay tax. You have to pay tax on that original capital gain investment. You have to pay tax on that capital gain in 2026. So you have to recognize that taxable event in 2026, whether or not you actually sell the investment in the Qualified Opportunity Fund or not. And I think that has been causing some pause and some confusion around what that actually means. Some people think that if you hold the Qualified Opportunity Fund for 10 years, that that original gain is actually what is eliminated, but it's not. That gain has to be paid in 2026. And what makes matters worse as we kind of head into this new year with the proposed Biden tax changes is that in 2026, there's a good chance if these proposed regulations are passed, that the capital gains rate, if you make over a million dollars, can shoot up 39.6%. And then you have to add in the net investment income tax, 3.8%. So you're paying over 40% in taxes potentially in 2026, which is giving some people who might be facing those tax rates pause from investing in these qualified opportunity funds because you just don't know what the capital gains rate is going to look like in 2026. That's a really, really great point. Really great point. And yeah, wow, that's a really great point. One that I didn't even think about. So wow, yeah, nicely done. Yeah, you're right. Because if you are deferring today, but you could have paid tax at 23.8% today, but you defer through this qualified opportunity fund, you know, you might get a good return on investment, but in 2026, you have to pay tax on the net gain. And that net gain may be taxed at roughly 40%, not factoring in, I guess, state, uh, actually it'd be even higher, it'd be like 42%. So, wow. Yeah, you're right. That's, you got to be careful about that. You got to plan for that. Now you mentioned Tom that you have to invest by December 31st, 2021 to get that 10% step up in basis. And I just want to clarify that for folks. So the reason that that's the case is in 2026, you are going to have to pay tax on the gain. So if you invest by December 31st, 2021, you will have allowed five years to accrue by the time 2026 rolls around, right? 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026. I'm counting on my fingers for those of you listening in your car. But that's five years that elapse and that allows that five-year step up to happen, right? So if you invest on January 1st, 2022, you're not going to have a full five years elapse before you have to pay tax. And so what that means is you're not going to get that 10% step up in basis. So you got to be really careful on the timing of these investments. You know, another thing too is that well, you can roll forward your capital gain. So it's so a really cool qualified opportunity funds. You can roll forward your capital gain. You don't have to roll forward your basis. So different than a 1031 exchange, right? 1031 exchange, you have to roll forward everything. But in a qualified opportunity fund, it's just the gain. You can cash out your basis, which is really neat. But you can't you can't roll forward your 1245 and 1250 recapture. That's depreciation recapture. So if I sell a rental property, can't roll that forward. I got to pay tax on that. I can only roll forward the gain. So who is a qualified opportunity fund really good for at the end of the day? It's good for people that have large equity stakes in businesses, whether that's stock market investments or whether it's just private equity 
or uh, venture capital type of arrangements. So if I've got large stakes, large Apple stock holdings or large Tesla holdings, Tom likes Tesla. What are the other ones you like, Tom? You were just telling me about them before. Netflix, Apple, Google. There you go. Um, Netflix, man. Netflix, I haven't looked at Netflix, but I'm sure they've crushed it during the pandemic. Everybody's sitting at home just watching, watching. I know I have. I've watched a lot of shows, a lot of new shows. So you're sitting in one of those, you're investing in one of those stocks, you've or investing in one of those companies, you've experienced large run-ups, you've got large gains. Well, you cash out those gains, you take your basis back, you can cash your basis out and you roll forward your capital gain. And what are you doing? You're moving out of the equity markets and you're moving into real estate. You're shifting your portfolio around. You're moving out of the equity markets, out of the stock market, out of private investments, and you're gaining real estate exposure. And I think that that's probably why we haven't seen a whole lot of our clients jump into this because, you know, a lot of our clients, we have, we have hundreds and hundreds of clients and they really, you know, they do a pretty good job diversifying, but, but because they're already diversified, they're not really like looking to, you know, pull out of the equity markets and gain more real estate exposure or some of our clients that, you know, don't diversify and just believe real estate's the way to go. Uh, which you know, I'm not, it's not a wealth planning episode or podcast. So do your own due diligence. Uh, they don't have anything in the equity markets. So they're already in real estate. And if you're already in real estate and you're looking at, should I do a qualified opportunity fund? You start looking at like the 10 year hold period. Most of our clients are in deals for five to seven years. So 10 year hold is a really, is a negative. Uh, you start looking at the 1245, 1250 recapture, depreciation recapture, not being eligible for the roll forward. Then you start going, well, I don't know if I should do this or maybe what I'll do instead is I'll just go buy a bunch of assets in qualified opportunity zones and I'll sell them to the qualified opportunity funds. <laughs> so we've, we've had quite a few clients actually do that instead. That That is what they deem a little bit more opportunistic than investing in a QOF. That's what we've kind of seen. You know, A lot of our clients aren't really interested in qualified opportunity funds, but the ones that are, it's typically because they have large equity holdings either in the stock market or in private businesses that they're looking to cash out, roll forward and gain real estate exposure as a result. Yeah, so to kind of summarize the qualified opportunity fund conversation. Basically, the way a qualified opportunity fund works is you you would take your capital gain, again excluding the depreciation recapture. You invested in the qualified opportunity fund. Qualified opportunity fund. If you do that between now and the end of 2021, you'll be eligible for the 10% step up, which takes five years. You need to hold in the fund, but you do have to pay taxes in 2026 on the original capital gain at the rates in 2026, not the rates in the year you invested. Uh, that can be uh, a negative for some investors out there. And then if you hold your interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund, then your actual gain on the Qualified Opportunity Fund investment itself is exempt from taxes. And that is pretty much what a Qualified Opportunity Fund investment would look like from the investor's perspective. And just because of some of the complexities of not knowing where the capital gains tax rate or where your income will be in 2026, uh, give some people some pause as well as the 10-year hold and just the confusion around how that works. It hasn't been such a widely used tool as I think it was hoped to be. And uh, we'll just have to see how that all plays out. But most of our clients have not opted to use a qualified opportunity fund as their exit strategy. But something you should be aware of nonetheless, because it might work out for you. You know, one of the biggest problems we have in the CPA industry is people, the CPAs are too busy preparing tax returns to ever really provide any planning on how their clients can minimize their taxes, which is often costing their clients a lot of money. And Tom and I have worked with over a thousand real estate investors on tax planning over the past six years. We've saved them millions of dollars in taxes 
And the reality is, is that tax planning, especially one-on-one is really expensive. It's not in the budget for all real estate investors, but real estate investors are near and dear to Tom and I's heart. We're real estate investors. Our parents are real estate investors. We want to help every single real estate investor out there. So we created taxsmartinvestors.com. There's three subscription tiers. You can get a content subscription tier that gives you access to gated content. And we write it in a way that you can digest it. But there's also citations that you can go to your own tax preparer and say, wait a second, this is how it's actually supposed to be. And here's the citation. On that content subscription, you also get access to a weekly tax strategy newsletter. On top of that, we also have a subscription that gives you access to our insiders Facebook group, which just allows closer access to Tom and I and our team of CPAs. You can schedule paid calls with us and you can get access to our monthly workshops through that subscription tier. And those monthly workshops, we're doing tax planning, financial planning, we're going over accounting strategies and how to automate your systems. And then we have a a top tier. And that top tier, that's really where you get access to us and our team of experienced real estate tax planners. And you could do that through two calls. We'll take a look at your situation and determine what strategies you can use to minimize your taxes based on where you are where you're looking to go. In addition to that, what a lot of our clients have loved over the years is the ability to send emails where you could send your question and we'll get back to you with an answer within 48 hours. And you should definitely check that out if you're sending questions to your CPA and they're taking weeks to get back to you, if they ever get back to you, or they're not providing with any planning, we can take a look at your situation and determine what can be done to help you save on taxes. So another exit strategy is to do a 1031 exchange. We've talked a lot about 1031 exchanges and it's funny on one of my YouTube videos on the uh, TaxMart investors YouTube videos that I put up, one of the TaxMart daily videos, somebody commented and be like, wow, you're really not a fan of 1031 exchanges. I actually, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of 1031 exchanges. I love the fact that you can invest in real estate and continue rolling forward the gain over and over and over until you die. And then you can pass it on to your heirs at a stepped up basis. That's called swap till you drop. So a uh, good strategy there. But, but, but the reality also is that 1031 exchanges cost money and mental space. What do I mean by mental space? I mean, stress. 1031 exchanges can be stressful to pull off because there are very tight timelines related to a 1031 exchange. So for example, let's say that I, I have a property and I'm going to go sell it and I'm going to close on September 1st. When I close, two timelines immediately start. So I'm selling my property and I've got this big gain and I want to roll it forward in a 1031 exchange. I line up my qualified intermediary because I cannot receive the cash from that sale and then 1031 exchange. It doesn't work like that. So my qualified intermediary, my QI has to receive my cash at sale. They basically set up an escrow fund and they they take all my cash, they put it in that escrow fund. And the way that 1031 exchanges make most of their money, you would think it's off the fees, but it's not off the fees. It's off the interest bearing accounts that they put your 1031 exchange funds into. So they're going to take my cash, they're going to put it into an interest bearing account. They're going to earn money. They're going to earn interest income. That's where they uh, apparently make most of their income. But uh, so QI QI steps in September 1st, they take my money. Two timelines start immediately. I have a 45-day identification period that starts September 1st. I also have a 180-day closing period that also starts September 1st. So the first mistake that we see investors make is thinking that my 180-day closing period only starts after I identify, I I formally identify the properties that I'm going to 1031 into. And that's not the case. The 180-day closing period starts day one of sale. So September 1st, the 180-day closing period starts. 
and that 45-day identification period starts. Now, during the identification period, you have to formally identify property, hand that to your QI, and you have to eventually close on some or all of those properties. There are three types of rules that you can adhere to during your identification period. The first rule is the classic one that most people are familiar with. It's the three property rule. You identify three properties regardless of the market value and you close on at least one of them. So I sell I sell property A September 1st. Uh, my 45 day identification period starts. I identify property B, C, and D, and I have to close on one of those within 180 days of September 1st. That's the three property rule. The second test is the 200% rule. You can identify an unlimited unlimited number of replacement properties as long as the aggregate value of all of those properties you identify does not exceed 200% of the sold property. So if I have a million dollar property that I sold on September 1st, I can identify as many properties as I would like as long as the aggregate value of all the identified properties does not exceed $2 million. Then there's the 95% rule. And the 95% rule says that you can identify as many properties as you'd like as long as you acquire 95% of the total value identified. Now, what's the point of the 200% and the 95% rule? Those are just there to provide you a little more flexibility in how you roll forward your game. So instead of saying, I can only identify three properties, if you want to identify more properties, maybe spread your risk, or maybe really, maybe you're bringing a lot more cash to the table uh, and you can go with that 95% rule instead, you can identify more properties than three. You just have to be aware of the 200% rule and the 95% rule. So 1031 exchange is a great alternative exit strategy. If you don't have suspended passive losses, like we talked about in the last episode, um, you could use the 1031 exchange in that instance or combine the two and defer part of your gain using a 1031 exchange. Uh, one of the things you have to watch out for in a 1031 exchange is basis erosion. Uh, so as you each time you do a 1031 exchange, your basis in the asset is not going to be the same as the cost of that asset. So you might have a $4 million property that has a basis of $2 million and it's going to impact the depreciation expense over time, which could inhibit your ability to your shelter the rental income from your assets, especially as you acquire larger and larger assets that, that, that produce uh, greater and greater amounts of rental income. Yeah. An example of that basis erosion. So that's not like a, a technical term. It's just one that Tom and I made up after we've helped hundreds and hundreds of real estate investors with this type of stuff. But what happens is I start with a $100,000 property and my cost basis is $100,000 because that's, that's what I paid. And then over time, I 1031 exchange that $100,000 property. Maybe now it's worth $200,000. So my cost basis is 100. Now it's worth 200. And I want to sell it and 1031 it into the next property. So I sell it for 200 and then I go buy a $200,000 property. Well, Maybe my $100,000 property was a single family home. Maybe my $200,000 property is now a three unit property. Okay. So my three unit property, what is it going to do? It's going to spit off a little bit more cash flow for me, but I have to carry forward my basis from that original property, right? So when I buy this $200,000 three unit, I don't have a cost basis of $200,000. I have a cost basis of $100,000 minus whatever depreciation I've previously claimed on that original property. So my cost basis might actually only be $80,000, but I have a $200,000 property. And I have a $200,000 property producing cash flow that a $200,000 property produces. So I've increased my cash flow 
but I have not increased the amount of my annual depreciation expense. So what happens is over time, like that three unit property might uh, go to $300,000 in value. And then I sell that and I buy a four unit property for $300,000. And now my four unit property has a fair market value of $300,000, but it has that original cost basis minus the depreciation. So now maybe my adjusted basis is $70,000 and this $300,000 property. Again, I've increased my cash flow because I'm adding units, but I have not increased my annual depreciation expense. So what happens over time is that my depreciation expense does not keep up with my cash flow, increasing my cash flow, and I end up with taxable income at some later point. Because if I do this five more times, I'm going to end up with a you know one and a half million dollar property with a really, 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 really small basis. Maybe I have a one and a half million dollar property, but I'm depreciating it like a $300,000 property. And so it's producing cash flow like a $1.5 million property would, but it's producing depreciation like a $300,000 property. That is very realistic in big market runups, especially with where we're at right now. So you just have to be careful because that $1.5 million property is going to spit off a lot of cash flow that's going to be difficult to shelter from taxes. So you might actually end up creating this taxable income stream at some later point in your life with 1031 exchanges. It's not a bad thing because I'm I've sheltered all of this principle, right? All of this, all of this gain. I'm just rolling forward, rolling forward. And it's just growing and growing and growing. And it's producing more and more cash. So it's definitely a good thing. It's just important to be aware of the tax consequences. Kind of following on with what Brennan was saying, when you take your asset and when you buy the new asset, the replacement property, you're not actually restarting depreciation at the cost basis, right? You're going to be carrying forward the basis in the original asset and keep depreciating that on the depreciation schedule. And if you added any cash into the transaction, uh, you're going to be able to allocate a portion of that basis in the new building and start depreciating that at its new rate, which could which could help you increase your depreciation expense. So not all is necessarily lost simply uh, because of the basis erosion. So some things also with a 1031 exchange that are interesting is uh, if you're looking to, you know, quote unquote, get out of the day-to-day management of all your rental properties, maybe you've been a landlord for a few years or maybe many years, maybe your entire life and you know what, I'm uh, just tired of uh, tenants and toilets, as they say. Um, you could invest into what's known as a Delaware statutory trust, which allows you to basically take your 1031 exchange proceeds and place it into a passive investment. And that's what the DST is. The DST is kind of in some ways similar to a syndication, except the DST has been explicitly blessed by the IRS as being able to accept 1031 exchange proceeds. Because the problem is, you know, people looking to get out of the day to day and they'll be like, I want to invest in a syndicate. Can I exchange my real property for partnership interest, limited partnership interest with this syndicator? And the answer to that question is no, you can't exchange real property for partnership interest because it's not like kind property and partnership interests in and of themselves are not real property, despite the fact that the partnership may own the property, the interests themselves are not real property. So What's interesting is the Delaware Statutory Trust will actually go and purchase the property, and then you could 1031 exchange from your real property into the Delaware Statutory Trust, which again has been blessed by the IRS. And that can get you out of the day-to-day management because you're going to have professional management and sponsors very similar to a syndicate operating the properties that are owned by the DST. Great discussion on that. And, and something that you just said that I also want to talk about is 
if you are investing in a syndicate, it's really important to understand, like Tom said, that the partnership owns the asset. You own a partnership interest, right? So you, if you're investing in a syndicate, you own the asset, but in the eyes of tax law, you own a partnership interest and you cannot 1031 exchange partnership interests. But one thing you could do, and this isn't, this isn't going to work in like a syndication or a fund or anything. It's got to be like a smaller group. But one thing you could do is something called a drop and swap. So a drop and swap, the way that it works is I, let's say Tom and I, we create a partnership and we each own a 50-50 stake in this partnership. So our partnership interests are 50-50 each. The partnership goes and owns a million dollar property. Now that million dollar property increases to $2 million. And let's say that Tom wants to go one way. He wants to go do something with his increased capital. And I want to go and 1031 exchange it. Uh, so I, I want to stay in real estate, but I don't want to recognize the gain on this appreciation. Well, we have a problem because the partnership owns the asset. Tom and I each own a 50-50 partnership interest. I cannot 1031 exchange my 50% partnership interest. But what we can do is I can actually drop out of the partnership and take a tick stake, a tenants in common stake in the underlying property. So the partnership, or, or I guess the, well, it wouldn't be a partnership anymore because Tom would be the only one in it, but uh, the LLC would own 50% of the underlying asset and Brandon Hall would own the remaining 50% of the underlying asset. And because I own the actual real estate at that point, I can 1031 exchange that. Uh, Matt Rappaport did a great presentation on our 2021 tax and legal summit on this stuff. It is extremely technical and that guy blows it out of the water every single time. Uh, but if you're going to do a drop and swap, I highly recommend that you actually contact him and us. We can all help you walk through it, but you can do a drop and swap to 1031 exchange out of a partnership or out of a syndication. You just can't go partnership interest directly into real. You can't 1031 exchange a partnership interest. So you got to drop out of the partnership you got to directly own the underlying asset, and then you can 1031 the ownership stake that you have in that underlying asset. Yeah, yeah. So, so the bottom line here is kind of you can only exchange real property for other real property. Like you could exchange an apartment building for another apartment building, or a portfolio of single family homes, or um, a self storage facility, a piece of land, all these different things. But you can't exchange it for partnership interests. So, if you really want to go passive, your option there is to use a DST because that's going to allow you to exchange the real property for the real property. Um, but if you're in a partnership and people want to go their separate ways, that's when the drop and swap comes into play because now you have the real property or your partner is the real property and you can go your separate ways and still do what you want to do. So thanks everybody for tuning in. That covers pretty much the most common exit strategies we see. Again, that's in episode one, we covered using passive losses as well as uh, tax loss harvesting. And then in this episode, we covered 1031 exchanges and qualified opportunity funds. There are some other ones out there, including installment sales. And we'll probably touch on that in a future episode, uh, but that's all for this series. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. 
to become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.